I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. We are about to bring you inside analysis on UK politics in association with The Resident. Did you know that The Resident Covent Garden is the number one rated hotel on TripAdvisor out of nearly 1,200 options in London? Now, opinion pollsters would tell you that that sample size is enough to convince you to lend resident hotels your support the next time you elect to stay in London or Liverpool. Thanks for being here. Whitehall Sources starts now. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald with Kirsty Buchanan, a former advisor to Theresa May at number 10, and to Liz Truss when she was Secretary of State for Justice. Also, Oscar Reddrop, an advisor to Boris Johnson as PM. This week, as we take you behind the door of number 10 Downing Street, test balloons on immigration and the economy. How do they work? What's the point? And does it help make good policy? Does Matt Hancock deserve some credit for finding an alternative way <clears throat> to connect with voters by going on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here? And how can you tell when a Prime Minister is about to deliver bad news? In Checkers and Balances, a former advisor to Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell will assess whether attacking Keir Starmer for being part of Jeremy Corbyn's front bench is a worthwhile strategy from Rishi Sunak. And we'll open the door to the Correspondence Unit to read your messages and put your questions and your hot takes to Kirsty and Oscar. Thank you so much for finding us. Thank you for listening to Whitehall Sources. It is great to be with you and uh, thank you. Make us a regular part of your routine. Follow this podcast, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you're listening now. And leave us a review. The reviews are stacking up, actually. They're largely positive, which is nice. 
Uh, there's a couple of criticisms in there, which we just ignore. Uh, so leave a positive review as well. Uh, you can find us on social media. Uh, search for Whitehall Sources. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on TikTok as well. Uh, you get extra clips on there. Something which, by the way, made me forced me to go and change my shirt a minute or two ago uh, because we were all wearing black T-shirts. And we're not in mourning for anything in particular. So, uh, so I've now got a green shirt on. So you can see that on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram. And our inbox is always open. We're going to read your messages later in the correspondence unit. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Since we last spoke, which by the way was a week ago, um, things have really calmed down, which is potentially welcome, Oscar. Very, very welcome. When we initially agreed to do this podcast... The, 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 the agreement was once a week, Callum, and I think we've... <laughs> How many have we done now? Is it seven? This is number eight. We're, this is, we're recording number eight. Yeah, completely ridiculous. Completely <laughs> ridiculous. And it, actually, we were just saying off air, um, the kind of the media obligations is like a talking head that I've kind of taken on over the last few weeks. I began to feel quite disorientated by it just kind of going in every day into a different green room, kind of talking about the latest kind of political calamity. And it's actually been really, really... And I'm sure this is how the general public feel, probably. Just it's quite nice to have politics in a box a little bit, mm. kind of where it should be, rather than kind of the, the ongoing soap opera. Yeah. It just felt completely relentless. Yeah. It just, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a much, much steadier week, I think. I mean, it was steadier, and then, of course, this happened. And I'm sorry to have to do this, but this is, of course, the I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here theme tune. Uh, Matt Hancock is being deported to Australia, Kirsty. Is this welcome news that we're finally shipping him off? Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, I just think if you are needy enough to want to go on national television and eat camel's anus and be locked in a box with, you know, rats and cockroaches, I think kind of good luck to you. Um, someone said yesterday there are good midlife crises and bad midlife crises, and this is clearly, <laughs> clearly the latter. But, I mean, and this is the thing with Matt Hancock. He's got this kind of image of himself as a nice guy, and he can't understand why he's become a sort of national pariah. Um, and I think this is mainly, you know, oh, yeah, he's got a book coming out and he wants to raise awareness for dyslexia, fine. But this is really about, as far as I can work out, him going on TV and going, look, I'm nice, everybody love me, see how nice I am. And I just think, look, I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, for me personally, OK, Fully Boots, good luck with the whole, you know, Bush Tucker trials, which you will be voted for every single one. Uh, <laughs> but I think, look, if you're a constituent of his and he's supposed to be a serving MP, I think if you are sat at home right now worrying about how you're going to heat your home and feed your kids this winter, I think this is, you know, this is uh, much less funny. Uh, I think if you're a health worker or a care worker that endured everything that they had to endure during COVID, this is downright insulting. And I think if you lost a loved one, particularly if you lost a loved one in a care home, uh, after Matt Hancock promised that a protective arm would be thrown around uh, our care homes, uh, I would be probably, you know, incandescent with this. This is crass beyond measure. If, you know, you have a perspective where COVID was you know, life-altering for you and you lost people or you endured a level of suffering that no human being should ever have to endure. 
so, you know, look, as far as I'm concerned, you know, he can do it to free country. But I think for a lot of people in this country, it's really, really upsetting. Is there anything to be said for the principle of the idea of a politician trying something alternative to communicate a message and to connect with people in all of this, though? Penny Mordaunt, I think it was 2014, did Splash. Now, she did Splash to uh, raise money to save the local Lido, um, and which succeeded, but I, I think. And kind of hats off to her on that. Um, I then inherited her at the department I was working at the time as the High Streets Minister. And in terms of profile raising and the capacity to do good because you've been on telly and people have seen you, I mean, she was a... She was a very junior minister when I worked with her at DCLG. And we'd just launched the Great British High Street Award, of which I'm sure you're both familiar. Um, a a marvellous, sure. marvellous competition. Um, and it is, imp- I mean, look, there's, you know, there's, there's prizes in there for, for winners of the competitions. But, but it was really all about, you know, celebrating the Great British High Street and encouraging people to go to the High Street and use it. And Penny had just joined... You know, she was a very junior minister, apart from Splash, she'd have had, like, zero profile at all. Um, and at the time, our comms campaign budget was zero pounds and zero pence. <laughs> so I put Penny on this punishing tour of, you know, every town and every high street across Britain in the summer. And every single, you know, local media outlet, broadcast outlet, wanted to talk to her because she'd been on Splash and queue loads of headlines about the minister making a splash on the high street except so it actually worked in her favor she saved a local lido Mm. she highlighted a fantastic campaign (laughs) and raised awareness of how brilliant our high streets are so you can Mm. do it and do it well uh but this is not an example of doing it well i suppose the principles of that and doing splash probably didn't take her away from constituency work it wasn't international it was something that she could potentially do alongside actually being an MP, whereas I'm a Celebrity removes Hancock from, from all of that. Is that. But what, what do you think, Oscar, on this? Because I'm quite taken by the idea that politicians should do things that are a bit different to get attention and, and sort of break with tradition. Well, definitely. I mean, the, so this whole... So one, going back to how we started off the podcast this week, he's been hit quite hard, I think, by a, a relatively slow political news cycle. Mm. I think, you know, if you'd gone back a couple of weeks, I mean, I think it opened the six o'clock news uh, when, you know, when everyone found out about this. That would never have happened a couple of weeks ago. So he's been hit quite hard by that. All the talk shows about it, talking about it, front page headlines, opening up the news, six o'clock news, as I said. Uh, So that's kind of put a spotlight on it. Uh, and from his perspective, very damaging and exposing one that wouldn't have been there a couple of weeks ago. So I think that's quite unfortunate for him. Um, and I don't know if he, him and his team had control over when it was announced he was going on or not. Mm. Um, but if they had an element of control on it, they've made a bit of a mistake there. Uh, you probably want to slip that one in or at least prepare people that you were going on a couple of weeks back. I think there potentially lies the answer, though, where he wasn't given a... Uh, cabinet position by Rishi. He wasn't brought back into government. And that's why I think he's accepted to go on. I mean, he kind of made a bit of an error by telling people that he'd rejected it twice already, the show, 
And this was the third time they asked him and he's finally yielded and said, yes, I'll go on. Mm. And the two for me in terms of not being invited back into government and then finally accepting are 100% linked. I think that if he had said my time, you know, and he could, he could hold his hands up and I think he could plausibly say, I led this country as health secretary through an unprecedented challenge that hadn't happened a hundred years before and may not happen in a hundred years uh, for another hundred years and mistakes were made, but there were some achievements that I'm very proud of. I am now leaving politics and then do the show. Mm. And I think people would be like, oh, good luck, you know, you know, and it just wouldn't have had the same inflammatory reaction. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So I think having his having his cake and eating it is, isn't really working for him. The, the, the only thing I would <laughs> say... cake is again, it is always bad. Yeah, and I'm got, I have yeah, to say, he's going to be dreaming of cake over the next couple of weeks, I should think. <laughs> Jeepers. But, but the thing is here that he, I think why a lot of MPs have got quite jumpy about this, and as someone who's worked for a backbench MP, this is, it's quite revealing what's happened here because the uncomfortable truth that I haven't heard people talking about a lot is that if, as a backbench MP, you have really good staff and an experienced caseworker, and a caseworker, for people who don't know, is someone who works in the MP's office, who will deal with the really, really difficult, processy issues that constituents go to an MP about. Like, you know, um, it could be anything. It could be, like, trouble with paying bills or, you know, links with local councils, outreach services. It could be, you know, just the real... MPs don't really do that. So when you email your MP, it won't be your MP who's following up nine times out of ten. It will be their experienced caseworker. So the idea that Matt Hancock being in Australia means that he is completely surrendering his uh, constituents to a lack of service, the uncomfortable truth in that is that he's not, because his office will be doing that. So it will be normal business. As far as I'm aware... (laughs) The, the only thing he can't do whilst he's in the jungle is, unless he has, a, I mean, he's obviously, you know, a voting, I mean, he, he, could, he can even vote because he can do a pairing system, um, is that he can't, you know, stand in the chamber and, mm. you know, and, and this, there is a problem with this and this isn't, you know, and, you know, put pressure on the government for local constituency issues by standing up and, you know, uh, and making statements in the chamber. Um, apart from that, I can see why maybe arrogantly he thinks I can go off to Australia and my office will do the rest. Interesting. Yeah, but tax, taxpayers don't, you know, aren't or shouldn't be paying for him to, you know, not do his job and go to the other side of the world to massage his ego and raise his profile. I mean, you know, this is a this is an exercise in Matt Hancock trying to rehabilitate Matt Hancock in the eyes of the British public. I, you know, on the taxpayer's yeah. dime. I just think it's a bit extraordinary. His rehabilitation tour has been ongoing for quite some time and started way back when with this absolute gem. I resigned because I broke the social distancing guidelines. Yeah. Um, by then, they weren't actually rules. They weren't the law. But that's not the point. The point is they were the guidelines that I'd been proposing. And, you know... That happened because I fell in love. <laughs> if kangaroo balls won't make you sick, then Matt Hancock talking about <laughs> f- falling in love 
Certainly will. Uh, I was also going to bring you this, which is from The Sun and reported in Political This Morning, Political Playbook. Uh, Hancock could be saved from some of the toughest tasks thanks to his apparent rotting foot, according to The Sun. The paper claims Matt Hancock got trench foot while filming another game show in recent weeks, Celebrity SAS Who Dares Wins, and it might not have cleared up, meaning water-based tasks or swimming trials in the jungle could be out of the question. Oh, this is the problem that he's going to face. This, this is the problem. So you fight your battles to get on the show and the huge political fallout and Kirsty's kind of hit the nail on the head countlessly in terms of how the public uh, will have received the news that he's going on. But then once he's actually on the show, <laughs> he must be so it kind of inherently confident that he, one, is going to be completely game and secondly, that he is going to come across as a likable person. And that is, I don't know him. I don't know him at all, Kirsty. I don't know if you do, but like that, that makes me really nervous on his behalf. I mean, you know, I'm sure he's going to do that. And I don't know about you, I'm desperately trying to get the idea of Matt Hancock's trench foot out of my, <laughs> out of my uh, mental imagery. I'm locker. trying to get the idea of him in love out of my mental imagery. <laughs> This is before oh, we get the on, actual Darren. images of him chowing down on camel's anus and kangaroo's <laughs> penis, but um, <clears throat> all sorts of lovely images of Matt Hancock floating through our minds right now. <laughs> um, what was the point? I've completely lost my point. Uh, you, were you were going to consider... <laughs> oh, God! Oh, God! My mind is now so full How of... How likeable is he? Uh, yeah, his like animal is. parts and trench foot. I can't think straight. <laughs> Uh, yeah, his likeable, his likability, and I would actually oh, just yeah, say no. to, to tee that up when he does interviews with us on the radio, he is genuinely quite pleasant and genuinely quite up for it, and he does come across as a reasonably okay kind of person. Sure, and look, and he's going to go on, and he's it, the expectation I'm sure from him will be that he'll be voted to do every Bush Tucker trial, and he'll be very game and up for the challenge. I think if the public really wanted to spite all this, they should vote him off at the first opportunity. Yeah, and that's yeah. an interesting because that would be the biggest blow to him. Would be they yeah. didn't like me very much. I'm out of here. Mm, that's interesting. That's an interesting point. Then he gets to spend a couple of weeks in like a posh five star hotel, I think, unless he chooses to come home and continue serving his people, of course. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you saw today. They, they actually, I, I think a, a journalist has found out just how much he's being paid to do it, mm. and it's you know it's four hundred thousand pounds, which Oof. is a a lot of money. And despite my slightly academic defence of the realities of being a backbench MP and why you could justify potentially going on it in terms of your office still ticking over doing the nuts and bolts of the mm. job. That reason alone, that payment alone, is why he should hold his hands up and say, I've done my time in politics, yeah. I'm standing down, and I'm to doing this new career in reality. That's fine. It, you just can't take your MP's fee and, and, and also take nearly a quarter of a mil. I mean, yeah, those mil. Di divorces don't come cheap, Oscar, they do, they? <laughs> uh, right, still to come... I wouldn't on, know yet. <laughs> still to come on Whitehall Sources this week, we are going to uh, bring you checkers and balances. This is where we invite an opposition advisor to join us and to consider, I suppose, the position of the Labour Party, strategies of the Labour Party, and what advice 
they would give as well. Plus, we will open the door to the correspondence unit as well. This is where we read your emails, your messages, answer your questions, um, assess your predictions, all of that. Uh, so if you'd like to feature in the correspondence unit, then you can email anytime. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com and we'll get to those before the end of this episode. Let's consider then uh, test balloons. That's what I'm calling this part of this week's podcast. Um, I want to consider the economy and immigration, which are two issues that are have been bubbling around a lot this week and about which we've heard... I guess some indications, some policy ideas about how, first of all, Suella Braverman might address the immigration issue, the crisis that has become apparent again in the last few days. And also as we build up to the uh, fiscal statement, the autumn budget, whatever the heck we're calling it, on the 17th of November, we're starting to get a bit of an idea of what is being considered, what might be on the table, and indeed what might not be on the table. Even just today, as we record this on Thursday the 3rd of November at around midday, the Times um, follows up on the Sunday Times and says that the windfall tax on fuel firms could be raised from 25% to 30%, that it could last until 2028, and that it could be extended to electricity generators as well. That's apparently on the table. The I newspaper says that Rishi Sunak has shelved plans to uh, enhance and beef up Northern Powerhouse Rail. In the Daily Mail, there's a suggestion of the triple lock, of their options to reform that. And also we're anticipating talks between the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, and the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, on what this budget is going to mean for defence spending. So it feels, Kirsty, to me like we're getting these test balloons, i.e. ideas that are floated, put in the papers, talked about a bit, to see how much water they hold, to see if they're credible. What, what do you think of this concept of test balloons? Is that what we're seeing here? Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's a fairly standard practice. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, budgets and big fiscal statements were all kept very tight and the first we ever heard about them was when the Chancellor stood up uh, at the dispatch box these days, it's all over by the shouting um, uh, by the time the actual event comes around. And it's fairly standard practice to do two things, I think. One is if you've got a very, very difficult statement to make, you roll the pitch for it, you get people into a place where they are braced and ready for what is going to be some pretty grim economic news. And as we are talking, I've been keeping an eye on Twitter because the Bank of England was due at midday to uh, make its statement on interest rate rises. They've gone up 0.75% uh, to 3%. That's the single biggest rate increase in more than three decades. The Bank of England is warning that the UK is already in recession and that this recession could be the longest since comparable records began. So that is the kind of economic backdrop in which the November the 17th statement will be made. So there are no easy choices to be had here. There's very little low-hanging fruit. I mean, clearly it would be, I think, politically untenable not to take a second swing at uh, the energy profits, uh, particularly we saw BP announced another uh, bumper crop of profits this week. So I, I think this is probably, to your point about test balloons, you float a, a couple of things you, and to see how they go down in terms of polling and focus groups. Uh, but some of the rest of the stuff, you know, I've seen stuff floated around uh, stealth taxing where, weirdly, back in the day, you used to actually try and do this by stealth. Now we're telling people stealth taxes are coming, which is where you freeze the threshold. So as wages rise, more and more people drift into that 
higher kind of t tax threshold, and that is very, very lucrative for the Treasury. But they're actually now saying, hey, folks, this is coming, brace yourself for a stealth tax. So, yes, it's about... Um, some of it's about sort of trying it, but I think most of what we're seeing right now about some of these stories being floated out is to actually remind people again and again and again in the run-up to November the 17th, we are in a very, very difficult economic circumstances. There are going to be no easy choices, and these are some of the issues that we've got to grapple with and some of the trade-offs we're going to have to make. So I think it's more a pitch roll than a, than a you know, a balloon up. <laughs> The terminology is important. <laughs> a pitch roll rather than a balloon up, Oscar. Yeah, I mean, oddly, I think because of the Liz, you know, trussonomics, this is quite helpful for Rishi in terms of setting the ground for the very, very difficult decisions that are to come. Because the counter argument to the inevitably horribly cost cutting inflation tackling measures that will be announced uh, on the 17th of November. The, the, those counter arguments were all within, found within trussonomics uh, and they've absolutely been thrown, I mean, as has been proven, to be completely the wrong policies at completely the wrong time. So that's quite helpful for Rishi moving forward. And I've said before, I think the scene setting that we, that we are starting to see, and actually to be frank, the scene setting we saw even whilst Liz Truss was Prime Minister and um, that, that some people would call the coup of Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor began, you know, that first broadcast round he did on you know, how many episodes back <laughs> um, that we covered, that the Conservative Party feel a much surer ground and a much surer footing when they are talking about making tough decisions, and they actually are, I think, when they're handed the opportunity to invest and that slightly more kind of proactive, open-ended economics. I think this suits Rishi down to the ground. I think this suits Jeremy Hunt down to the ground. And that return to austerity, you know, they've, they've actually, I mean, there are advisors floating around government now who literally work for George Osborne and the Conservatives during austerity they will absolutely revert back to that crib sheet. And it will feel grown up and it will feel scary, but I think ultimately it will feel plausible. And I think the Conservative Party's reputation has taken a real, real damaging um, for simply not, uh, not appearing uh, economically literate and plausible in terms of Rishi's U-turn on COP. I think the, the seriousness of the situation and that interest rise announcement that Kirsty's just read out will completely add to that is completely linked to his initial decision to not, not go to COP. Um, I think the government and Rishi and Jeremy Hunt want to look like they are absolutely working day in, day out, almost solely on the economic crisis that we are experiencing. In terms of like using you know, press releases in a way to kind of flow out ideas and just see if they are doing it, and I wouldn't mm. want to you know, assume that, mm. But if they are, they're doing it very skillfully because we saw, again, just going back to my point about the experiment of kind of trussonomics, we saw the damage that kind of going foot, you know, going two feet in on ideas without solid foundation and backing can do. Yeah. And so if they are doing it, I think they'll do it very, very subtly and very, very carefully. Can you give us an idea, Kirsty, of what it's like in these two weeks or so uh, running up to a statement like we'll get on the 17th of November, when it's about 
sort of shepherding departments and departments have proposals and they've been asked to try to make cuts and what I guess what the atmosphere is like and what the what staff are having to actually do what are they what are they actually having to pull off in this couple of weeks well I mean for a start it starts considerably further out than than two weeks most of your uh, if you've got a big fiscal event most of that will have been locked down um, kind of considerably further in advance than the actual date of the statement uh, departments are asked to you know to put forward you know the kind of must-have list if you like the treasury the age the senior age and then you know working in conjunction with number 10 then work through the figures for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks in advance and some of and some of what is happening now is is the the pitch roll if you like of what has already been decided the idea that you know Department X right now can say to the Treasury, oh, you know, we absolutely need this and this is why these spending decisions have already been taken. So it, 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 the run out of it is a lot is a lot further out. And, you know, in essence, it's kind of night and day, a very small, very tight team. Uh, it's a joint unit now between number 10 and number 11 and has been for a couple of administrations. Um, and they they work it out you'll run up to almost to the final day, final minute sometimes on the actual statement. But the the main meat and potatoes of it, I think we're beginning to see is already there. Mm-hmm. I have to say, just as a complete aside, yeah. when we were talking about stealth taxes, Gordon Brown used to have an awful tell at the dispatch box, um, uh, which is how you could always spot when he was about to put something out into the world that the world was not going to like. And Gordon Brown had a very kind of slow, very deliberate kind of delivery. Except when he was getting to a piece in his statement that had some nasty gribbly hidden in it. And he would speed up. And I don't know if he realised he was doing this, but everybody... I used to work in the press gallery as a lobby correspondent at the time. Everybody in Google, like, speeding up, what's this bit? And, like, flag it and highlight it. So any time he would speed up in a budget statement, you'd just see loads of journalists underlining <laughs> that particular bit because they knew, they couldn't necessarily understand why at the time, but they knew that there was some hidden minefield in there. That's amazing. Do Prime Ministers often have tells? Is there anyone else you sp- Did you ever have to rein Theresa May in on something and sort of check her on, on something that you were like, when you do that, everyone braces for for bad news or something? Is there something that she would give away? You've, you've met Theresa May, right? I mean, <laughs> the idea that you've ever had to rein Theresa May back from something. Actually, it was kind of the opposite. She, um, you, the encouragement was actually to push her a bit further than she was willing to go. She, mm, uh, she, wasn't, she wasn't great at kind of, you know, colour and... Uh, couldn't really understand why anybody was interested in what book she read or what she, you know, what she liked to do to relax or all this kind of stuff. And she, she found it all rather sort of baffling that journalists would be like, "Give me some colour." Yeah, and, yeah. Fields of um, wheat, famously. Field, I did. I did have one uh, particular episode where she turned up for an interview with someone, and she was wearing. She has a, a a very good wardrobe of clothes, and she was wearing this really nice jacket. And silly me, uh, because it was a man interviewing her, obviously he was going to want to know, you know, what the jacket was. Uh, and I'd forgot to ask in advance. And uh, the, the journalist left and he said, oh, you know, about a you know, couple of hours later, he rang up and said, oh, by the way, the, the designer of that jacket, who is it? 
Is it, you know, British, is it mm. French, whatever? And I said, oh, I don't know, I'll, I'll go and find out. And, of course, this was done at the last minute, and I went back to the, to the Prime Minister's office and she'd gone, taking said jacket with her. And honest to God, the effort and the trouble that I went to to try and find out, I eventually had to ring the Prime Minister and say, I'm really sorry to bother you, Prime Minister, but can you just tell me the name of the designer of that jacket? You could just... The sort of complete confusion about why on earth would anybody want to know? But but journos, media love a bit of colour. Yeah, for um, sure. It just puts some kind of... You know, humanity behind mm. a lot of what can be quite dry and dust. Oh, we've seen quite a lot of too much colour, perhaps, in recent politics. But uh, no, she was the opposite. You needed to push her more than she was willing to go. Oscar, how would you compare that to Boris Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> oh, very funny. <laughs> Thank um, you. Well, the thing with Bo- the thing with <laughs> the thing I always found with Boris, you know, like around if I was you know briefing him for a you know a pool clip, an interview, or whatever it may be, was one, I found it slightly... The thing that with, with, with Boris is that he understands the media and playing, playing off the media and PR kind of better than any PR comms professional. You know, I, I kind of think at times the battle was he probably wanted to be his own director of comms. And I think to a degree, in some ways, he'd be the best person to do it for himself, if that was, mm-hmm. of course, you know, possible. Um, and at times, you know, we'd sit and we'd talk about... He, he'd split... So he, when he was briefing, he'd have a piece of paper and he'd kind of split the page into little uh, kind of squares and topic by topic, he would just kind of bullet point the really dull, kind of boring but important facts he would need. And then when it came to colour and how you sell that message... Um, and I, again, I'm kind of abdicating myself of all responsibility, but I used to just say... Just say what you think. Just say what you feel. Like with someone like that, I remember we had, when the trans debate was really kind of boiling over at one point, uh, and we knew it would come up in a pool clip, uh, and you know it was kind of like, oh, you know, what should I, you know, and and the advice that I remember giving was just, well, what do you think? Yeah. Just say that. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I think with a politician like Boris. Um, that makes people a bit nervous and a bit dangerous. Like, oh my God, don't tell Boris to say what he thinks. <laughs> but actually, that's when he's at his best. So less was l- less was more, I think, sometimes with Boris. Really interesting. Um, really interesting insight. I just want to do a quick mention of Suella Braverman and immigration because we did the full episode last week really on Suella. Uh, and and where, I, I just guess where we're at a week on because if anything, the crisis, the, the knowledge, our knowledge about the immigration and migration crisis is intensified um, and, and action remains to be seen. Is this an area that we actually could do with some more kite flying, test balloons, pitch rolls going on? Has anybody got ideas here? I don't... I mean, the, the trouble with this is there is not a neat solution yeah. to this. The government's preferred solution is to fly people to Rwanda. Now, that is clogged up in the courts. I think a decision from the High Court is expected this month. Even if the government wins on that, campaigners will appeal. It will go to the Supreme Court uh, and, you know, could go all the way to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. So there is no way... that. Regardless of what you think about that policy, there is no way that that policy is is being enacted this side of the election, if any. So uh, at the meantime, you've got we're spending six point eight million pounds a day on housing asylum seekers. We have 
uh, a backlog in asylum applications which averages at 480 days, uh, just to put this in perspective, of the channel migrants that come over, only 4% of the channel migrants from last year have had their applications processed. And at the same time, we've seen this exponential rise in channel migrant crossing to to, to in an estimated 40,000. Now, when we talk about words mattering, and obviously there's been a lot talked about um, Braverman's use of the word invasion to talk about uh, channel migrant crossing, uh, which uh, was ill-advised. Whether it was deliberate or not, I don't know, but you know, words do matter and words like that are potentially problematic because they send out signals to people within society. And we'll have seen this with Boris after he wrote about uh, women dressed as, as letterboxes, I think it was, postboxes. Attacks on Muslim women went up. Uh, so politicians need to be very mindful of the language that they use. But interestingly, reading around this subject for the podcast, because I do like to prep, um, uh, there was a. We were close, apparently, to a deal. I read in the Times where we were going to up our British patrols on French soil, and the only way at the moment I think that you can make any kind of inroads in this is to have a beefed-up joint agreement deal with France, and you stop people crossing in the first place from French soil rather than worrying about them when they get here. Now. At the moment, French interception rates are about 42%. Rishi Sunak believes if you get them up to about 75%, that will really help bring down the levels of migrant crossing we're seeing at the moment. We were close to apparently signing a deal to to, to beef up our patrols on, on French beaches. And then Liz Truss said, when she was asked about Macron, friend or foe, and she said, well, the jury's out. And that kind of put a pause in that. So... Uh, I thought this was a fascinating kind of cause and effect. What was a very flippant, not particularly funny and slightly crass joke at the time actually has real world consequences where we were very, very close to striking a deal which might have helped bring these numbers down and stop so many people making such dangerous, dangerous crossings. Um, this is a topic to which we will return in the correspondence unit because, Oscar, your comments last week that Suella Braverman speaks actually on on behalf of a lot of the electorate um, have garnered well we'll find out a lot of support or a lot of criticism we'll do the correspondence unit before the end of the episode stay with us on whitehall sources for that whitehall sources is brought to you in association with the resident hotels that are your home away from home in london and liverpool Resident hotels provide the perfect base to explore the city. Maybe you stayed in the resident in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference just a few weeks ago, or you may be looking for a base from which to explore London. You might even be on a political pilgrimage to Whitehall and Downing Street, inspired by this very podcast. Whitehall Sources brings you the inside info on politics. The resident brings you insider info on your chosen destination. Go to residenthotels.com to become a member and secure exclusive rates and the resident teams will support you throughout your stay. Now it is time to bring in our opposition advisor of the week in our fantastically named feature, Checkers and Balances. Go on, Boris and Keir. Checkers and Balances. 
this week, it gives me great pleasure to welcome James Medway to Whitehall Sources, who is an advisor to John McDonnell when he was Shadow Chancellor. James, hello, welcome. Hello. Great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Um, I think one of the things to start with is, uh, is, is kind of just an overview. I like to do this. An overview of Keir Starmer as an opposition leader, particularly in the face of Rishi Sunak. What's your kind of broad assessment before we get into the detail? Well, he's got more of a challenge than he had uh, with Boris Johnson. The, the contrast between the two worked uh, well for him. Once we got out of um, the sort of the immediate coronavirus period in particular, I think the contrast between the two he could play up to. Uh, I think with Rishi Sunak, that's a, that's a harder that's a harder task. I mean, they're, they're both sort of occupying at least presentationally very similar spaces as, as you know, the kind of the sensible people who are going to say sensible things and, and think sensibly about what to do next. Now, underneath that, there's actually really quite a lot of difference between the two. Uh, in terms of w what they say they want to do uh, with the economy, with, with wider society, the, the kind of you know, sort of policies and program that they're laying out, but at least presentationally, uh, on a sort of first glance, like this, this looks like a, a harder, a harder um, strategy for, for Keir to come up with to deal with him. Well, just on that, then I want to play this, which is from Prime Minister's questions this week, which is perhaps quite revealing in terms of uh, how Rishi Sunak will deal with. Keir Starmer as well, because that's worth considering in all of this. So let's take a listen. Mr Speaker, the right honourable gentleman rightly raised the topic of national security, because it is important. But this is the person, this is the person who in 2019 told the BBC, and I quote, I do think Jeremy Corbyn would make a great Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, let's remember that national security agenda, abolishing our armed forces, scrapping the nuclear deterrent, withdrawing from NATO, voting against every single anti-terror law we try, befriending Hamas and Hezbollah. He may want to forget about it, but we will remind him of it every week because it's the Conservative government that will keep this country safe. Okay, so that's Prime Minister's questions and all its glorious theatrical drama. Kirsty, I think st let's start with you on this because, from a Prime Minister's point of view, how valid, how much value do you place on that as a strategy? He said he's going to mention Jeremy Corbyn every single week. Well, <clears throat> I mean, it's good knockabout stuff, isn't it, for PMQs? And it's uh, it's a good line to rally the troops, and you can hear all the Conservative MPs in the background cheering him to the rafters on that. And I am struck, actually, by uh, both his appearances. Uh, he's clearly going to be quite punchy at the dispatch box, much more punchy than I think people had anticipated. So you don't have, like, you know, solid, sensible Keir up against the sound money man. So you, there's there's attempt to make, you know, to, to really take the fight to him. Uh, will it work? I mean, well, we, we shall see, but... Um, uh, Corbyn is the past. By the time we get to 2024 election, the 2019 election will be self-evidently five years away. Uh, I mean, yes, it is true. You, you know, you could also say, you know, this is a man that you know, tried to stop Brexit. There's a, there's a few decent attack lines you can go at Starmer with, but I think it's more about cheering uh, the troops behind than it is about persuading the public. I would agree. I mean, there is a problem. It'll work for a bit, and I think Boris Johnson used it rather effectively, but that was coming straight out of the 2019 uh, election. You know, memories are fresh at this point. Um, by the time you get to 2024, it's really quite a long time away, and it's a, it's a long way since Jeremy Corbyn was anywhere near the leadership of the Labour Party, and people will be looking at what's immediately happened in the five years 
uh, that the Tories have been in power. And, and that, I think, is, is the record that they'll have to work hard against. It's no use saying, well, yes, OK, this wreckage is bad, but imagine how much worse it would be if Jeremy Corbyn was in charge of it. And then, of course, Jeremy Corbyn isn't on the ballot paper as leader of the Labour Party in 2024. So it's, it's a weak attack, but it does, I mean, exactly as, as, as said, it does do the job of rallying the troops uh, behind you if you're at PMQs. I'm not sure how much it's going to cut with anybody else in, out there in the real world. Mm. I wonder if there's a thing here, Oscar, you know, saying Starmer once wanted Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister is is the same sort of attack strategy as saying Sunak once wanted Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister. Um, but, you know, but that, but that is the case, that Rishi Sunak wanted Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister. I just wonder how much you can taint somebody now with, with that support in the past. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the thing I always wonder... And and I, I don't know what the operation was like when you were there, Kirsty, but I was slightly probably disappointed in the polling kind of capabilities at number 10 or how much emphasis is placed on that. You know, you, you would presume, I guess, that these attack lines have been polled and potentially they've been polled in communities, you know, like the Red Wall and the, the Purple Wall, as it's we, we now know as well. Um, because if they haven't, and it's just a new prime minister who's gone in, huge intray, as we know, and PMQs is kind of, understandably, I guess, in terms of just sheer performative politics, is right at the bottom of the priority list. And they just think, yeah, this is just a really nice, easy kind of, as you said, morale-boosting um, attack line to go with. Because if it hasn't been polled, and it is just, as you said, you know, the Rishi wanting Boris and, you know, da, da, mm. like... It, it just doesn't stand up for me at all. And particularly because the electorate now, I think, are more politically savvy and more politically aware than they ever have been. Largely, that's kind of enforced because <laughs> politics has just been so dominant, um, so, arguably for all the wrong reasons at times, in people's lives. And I think people see through that. And I just, I just, don't, I just don't think it works at all. The, only, the other thing I would say on it, though, if it isn't due to polling, um, it, and I've said this before in previous podcasts, like, there is, and this is a horrible reality for the Conservative Party, Keir Starmer is relatively squeaky clean. There's not a lot of grub on that guy to play with. Um, and I sometimes think it's just a rather slight, desperate attempt to, to try and take chunks off him. Because so they can't get him on the big stuff. So I don't, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that, and actually because of focus groups and because of polling. Now, whether uh, Team Sunak do a lot of focus groups and polling or not, the simple answer is I don't know, but there is enough out there to say, actually, the public aren't sold on Keir Starmer at all. Uh, there's a, you know, as we said before, you know, the, the, the Labour Party might be currently, you know, still ahead in the polls, but it's broad and it's shallow, and actually... If you listen to focus groups and watch focus groups or look at the polls, there's a there's a there's an underlying kind of trust element there with the public and Keir. They don't quite buy into Keir. They're not sure what he stands for, but they don't quite trust him. So actually, needling away at the things like, you know, you you, you tried to stop Brexit, you know, you backed Corbyn. Whilst it might sound, you know, on one level, and it is, you know, uh, a law of ever diminishing returns, because the further you move away from 2019, the more kind of in the rear view uh, mirror it gets, it actually serves to do something else, which is needle at that kind of instinctive lack of trust that the public have in Starmer. 
you can see this in the, the sort of headline polling. I must, must say, I'm, I'm quite, I wouldn't say if I'm, I'm reassured, but it's, it's interesting to hear from the other side that, you know, what, what you assume are carefully worked through attack lines honed by the, the finest polling brains in the land might might not always be that. But um, just on, on Keir Starmer, I think there's, there's, you can see in the headlines that he's polling much less well against Rishi Sunak than, than, than against uh, Liz Truss in terms of who do you want to be a leader or, of the whole country? Who would you want to be prime minister? But there's also this issue with him that quite deliberately he and the people around him had a strategy for the last few years of not defining himself uh, particularly positively around you know definite commitments to policies definite things he's going to say that has started to change but they've had two years to basically be relatively sort of defensive and somewhat negative about that and it has produced a blowback there is a problem with saying that, OK, these are the things I stood to get elected as leader of the Labour Party on, now they're, they're not sort of really there anymore. These are things I just said. Now, on one level, you're just kind of bashing a load of lefty activists and who cares. On the other hand, it does start to stack up into a little bit of a thing that you don't have to work very hard to say, well, if he said that to these people, these people, he's saying these things to get elected, who knows what he might say to everybody else just to get elected somewhere down the line. So there is something that you can poke away at there. And I think the, the leadership needs to be a little bit more careful about Really interesting. I want to put this to you as well from Ed Miliband on Twitter. Uh, this is this is the tweet. Sunak on Thursday, I can't possibly go to COP. Sunak six days later, I can't possibly not go to COP. Ed Miliband says, the guy is a phony. And I just wonder how effective this sort of feeling of U-turns and changes of heart and all of that, is that something, James, that has cut through? And that sort of line, the guy is a phony, is, is that trying to make something stick on Sunak, do you think? Well, it feels like it is, and, and we'll see whether it does. I mean, the, the, the Labour's ruled out probably, I, I, I think I can, I can see why, and, and I can understand the reasons for it, and, and I think it makes sense. Ruled out, you know, like going in for Sunak's very, very wealthy, what would he know about the real world, that sort of thing. I mean, it's sort of sitting there waiting to be used, but I don't think that would be something that the Labour front bench particularly want to get into. Not least because it starts to open up questions about, well, what might you do about people having uh, phenomenal amounts of wealth? I mean, would you introduce wealth taxes? It's not a conversation... <laughs> Uh, they want to get into. Whether it's Sunak's a phony, and, you know, sort of a wider question about is, is he fake in some sense? I, I don't know. I don't know whether it's quite going to work. I find it hard sitting here to be able to say, well, how are people going to, going to respond to that one? I mean, because being a bit of a traditionalist, I do tend to think you have to go and, like, what is the policy? What is the thing you say you're going to do? Never mind how you're saying it or who it is saying it. What is it you want to do? And stick closely to that. And on that one, I think Labour's on very solid ground because it doesn't look good. Uh, coming up over the next few weeks, what the Tories say they're going to do relative to what they said they were going to do in 2019. Mm. Is that something, Oscar? I'm, I'm, I'm always intrigued. I think COP was a really interesting one because when we were doing the radio programme on Times Radio, we were getting loads of texts saying Sunak should go or at least should find a solution. Why doesn't he join virtually? Why is he not going? Why has he banned the king from going? And then all of a sudden, he is going. Uh, and so I just wonder, issues like that, they can feel almost unimportant but does is, is a pattern of behavior is that are we already seeing that at this point well i mean he's he's kind of slightly come out of this issue with the worst of both worlds in kind of uh saying you're not going to go fine um i think there is plausible there's a plausible rationale uh for not going and i think actually the right of the Conservative Party and the, the, to the right of Conservative voters actually really praised him for that. Um, and then as soon as a certain Boris Johnson says that uh, he's attending, you then suddenly rush back and you don't get any of the credit for it. For, so you don't even get the credit 
of doing the right thing that you sometimes get with doing a, a quick and decisive U-turn. So he's come out of that completely, um, completely, uh, slightly embarrassed, I think. I do think it's slightly unimportant, though. Um, I think it's a reflection, actually, of a more healthily, uh, more healthy political <laughs> kind of issues news cycle we've got. You know, as we said at the start of the podcast, you know, two, three weeks ago, it would have, it would have, I think it would have been well, well down the list in terms of spotlight. Um, the only thing I would say on it, Rishi Sunak. There are some politicians that I think can get away with, in inverted commas, U-turns. And they get away with it um, by being kind of, I'm a pragmatist. You know, political climate and issues change and the, the, uh, the, the emphasis I need to place on this issue cha can change week to week depending on factors. And because I'm a pragmatist, I will make a decision based on those factors. I think he can get away with that more than most. They're very definitive kind of brute force kind of character leaders. Uh, I think Boris is someone who was a little bit like that. I think Jeremy Corbyn was someone like that. So when they make a U-turn, it feels, it, it feels mm. more dangerous for them, I think. Where, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a pragmatist. He's a smart kind of, you know, uh, prefect pragmatist politician. <laughs> a prefect pragmatist, I like that. Um, <laughs> James, while we've got you on, I want to ask you about Rachel Reeves, who is now mm -hmm. the Shadow Chancellor, of course. Um, even today, we're recording this on Thursday, of course. Uh, she's going to be speaking. Uh, we, we expect her to say this. This is what has been briefed. As a country, we've become not only more unequal, but also poorer. The problems we face are global, but Britain's unique exposure each time has been down to a failure to get to grips with more than a decade of weak growth, low productivity and underinvestment and widening inequality. I believe we can overcome these challenges, um, etc., etc. Is that the sort of messaging that Labour need to cling to and that the Conservatives need to be more aware of? You were speaking there about the depth of policy that you would be looking for. I think so. I think she's in the right sort of place with this. And it obviously plays to her own sort of personal strengths, given her, her background as an economist and where she comes from in the party to, to talk in a fairly sort of level-headed, serious, these are the, the, these are the problems we face and, and this is what we do about them. The, the challenge, I think, for, for Labour right now, and I, and I think actually I think Rachel Reeves and the people around her have done a, a good job of detailing what those problems are. I might sort of question the, the order of priorities that you place them, that you need to talk more about people's actual experiences, like what has happened to your wages. Uh, what has happened to the amount of rent you pay, that sort of thing, rather than just generically about growth. We saw what happened to Liz Truss when you just say, OK, growth's a big thing. It doesn't mean very much to most people. But in terms of detailing some of the problems and starting to lay out a plan, I think she, she's got some distance on this. The, the challenge for Labour is, is the one that we're all going to face, and, and all the big economies are facing this. It's not entirely unique to Britain, but we are in a worse place with it than others, which is, well, how, how do we pay for some of this stuff? Interest rates are rising around the world. It is more expensive for the government to borrow than it used to be. Frankly, we're in a worse place in this than this than we need to be, given the experience of the last sort of 10, 12 years or so. But actually, the cost question is the one that kicks in here. And that's going to involve uh, some discussion about tax rises. And that's going to involve saying who's going to pay for some of these nice plans to change the economy and the rest of it. And really, unless Labour start talking about this now, it's something that's going to bite you on the bum come the election, because then it's Labour tax bombshell and all of a sudden tax rises for everybody. Or alternatively, you just turn around and disappoint all your supporters and lots of people who might want to vote for you and say, actually, we can't really do anything. And that might be quite tempting for some of them, but I, I think would be a, a electorally a, an extremely bad place for Labour to get to. So, so it's, not, it's not easy being Shadow Chancellor. 
uh, in many ways, one of the hardest jobs, and I would say this, I suppose, I mean, only had to advise someone trying to do it uh, in British politics. But um, I think Rachel's done a very good job of detailing the problems and saying roughly where, you want, where she wants to go on this. But there's a whole set of other big political questions bearing down on, on the Shadow Treasury team now. We love that insight into what it was like to be an advisor. That's what we do on this podcast. And it strikes me that the other day, Wes Streeting was on the radio saying, uh, you know, the Conservatives are welcome to steal this idea. They should steal the whole thing. They should just go for it. da 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 how much of a concern is that for you when you're advising the shadow chancellor that you're coming up with these great ideas that you definitely want to implement should you be elected and then actually they might get stolen? No, this is good. Um, this is good. You, you know you're winning when, when your, your political enemies are making your arguments for you. And this is what Thatcher said about uh, Tony Blair famously, that, that her biggest victory, or possibly this is apocryphal, but it will do for the example, that you know, her biggest victory was, was Tony Blair leading the Labour Party, that if your opponents agree with your arguments, this is good. I mean, this is what Boris Johnson, 2019 manifesto, you can look at that and say, well, somebody's taken a close look at what Labour was saying in 2017 and so done a kind true. of Tory version of it, right? So this, to me, this is like the argument is being won. Things are moving in the, in the right direction here. Mm. Then the question is, what do you do next? Where do you go to after that? And that, that's probably the harder part. But it's a good dilemma to have. Just just to that point, the question I really wanted to ask you, James, because I I, um, I was I did a TV uh, appearance with a former advisor to Corbyn, and we got on to it was just after Rishi had been appointed, and I was kind of reeling off his you know long list of successes as Chancellor, and one of them being the furlough scheme. And it was put to me that actually you guys had, you know, behind the scenes had put on a huge amount of pressure for the government to take up such a furlough scheme. I was just wondering what the what that was like for you and what the reality was. Well, well, sadly, I'd, I'd left. I wasn't working for John uh, by that point. So, so I quit some, some time ahead of the, the 2019 election. But I'm understanding it. I mean, look, the, the, the furlough scheme um, comes from a number of different places. The TUC were arguing for something similar. But, but my understanding is that this was something that had been pushed heavily uh, by John, the Shadow Treasury team at the time, and eventually turns into you know the, the policy that, that works. And the, the Rishi Sunak got the political benefit of. Um, you can make a reasonable case that he wouldn't be Prime Minister now without the impacts of the furlough scheme for a, a long period of time. Uh, understandably, in the middle of a huge and frightening crisis, you're the guy handing out lots of money to people. Uh, understandably, he was, he was popular on the back of this, but it's a good point. It was the right thing to do. Yeah, you can question some of the details around it. It was basically the right thing to do. So that isn't a bad point to get to. Like, if in politics, you try to make a difference. It's not bad that people are doing sort of the right things. And actually, if you want to advance on doing the right things and do more, it's good to have that in the bag and then think about what you do next. I mean, the furlough scheme, can I be blunt? I think the furlough scheme has opened up the broader question about public spending. I think austerity is going to be harder this time round. It's going to be harder anyway, but it's going to be a lot harder, I think, because the impacts of furlough. Because actually people have had an experience of what government could do and how things could be different and could be quickly different in a way that they didn't have perhaps a, a few years before that. Really interesting. James, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time. Um, no great worries, to have you, you on. Now then, let us open the door to the correspondence unit. <laughs> Why are you all laughing at my sound effects? <laughs> it doesn't really sound like a door. It sounds like a mouse or something. Well, we'll just reopen the door. There it is. It's open now. 
<laughs> Guys, come you wanna, on. You want to put some oil on that? We're all, <laughs> we're all communications <laughs> professionals here. This is what we do. Uh, <laughs> the issue of Suella Braverman, then, we will return to in a second. Of course, if you want to be part of the correspondence unit, if you want to be one of our sources, if you want to come in the open door and make yourself at home in the <laughs> in the correspondence unit, then please do. You can email anytime. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the best email address to get in touch. Uh, there are many, many of you getting in touch, actually, so sorry if we can't read out all of your messages. There are loads, and we appreciate that very, very much. Uh, right, so immigration and Suella Braverman to come. First, this from Lynn. Uh, hi, Oscar pointed out that the speed of politics and level of media scrutiny does not always allow enough time to investigate fully the order of events, i.e. who knew what and when. I understand this, says Lynn, but in the case of the reappointment of Suella Braverman, Sunak clearly felt he knew enough about her misdemeanours to bring back someone who'd been let go only six days earlier. Now she's in a position he can't sack her again if a different version of the truth comes out. The let's, uh, let us get on with our job argument is fine, but surely there's a red line where a minister's competence are, and integrity are in question, says Lynn Morris. Yeah, I think Lynn's kind of spot on. I think that she uses the words there that uh, integrity, for example, that Rishi has very much pitched himself on, um, even during the selection process and actually in uh, his first communications video released via the number 10 social media channels. That was a big feature of it as well. This, I think, will link to Suella's, specifically in the case of Suella's performance um, in the chamber, where, you know, she used the word invasion. And it was an issue, regardless of who knew what when, that evidently number 10 felt they could move on that wouldn't hemorrhage too much. And I think so far that has proved to be the case. I remember when we talked about it, it was kind of, yes, around, you know, the, 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 the security staff, the leaks, the text messages, the emails. There was blood in the water for Suella on it, but it didn't feel like it was going to, to, to finish her. And I think that has proved to be the case. Mm. So it could have been potentially that Number 10 were aware of that, that there, there was going to be this awkward kind of teething phase where stuff would come out, but they'd be able to get through it. And actually, her performance in the chamber and moving on to actual policy and such a contentious inflammatory policy as immigration tends to be would actually move them past it. So maybe that was in their calculations as well. Yeah. Kirsty, do you want anything on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've seen more uh, more stories come out about Braverman and the, and the sequencing of events and actually, there are still some question marks over this for me about whether she volunteered because she volunteered her information to the to number ten, or because Andrew Percy had already made it clear to her that he had uh, put in a complaint and raised it with the chief whip. So she was kind of forced to volunteer, as it were. Mm. Um, I think Oscar's right, though. I think we did talk about this last week and said if it if it rolled into the Mondays, you know, it it. It had a problem on its, you know, with, number ten had a real problem on their hands, and it and it clearly that momentum did and is continuing. But funnily enough, I think in some ways the migrant crisis, which is part and parcel of this, has actually moved this off the front of the agenda, and it's now not so much about Braverman. It is about uh, an actual uh, failure of policy and the very real human consequences of that failure of policy, which we've seen with these terrible images and stories coming out of Manston. Mm. Um, 
So I, I think in some ways it has moved the debate, but every time something like this happens, it just drains a bit more goodwill. You've expended a lot of political yeah, capital that you didn't necessarily need to expend. Uh, and, it, you know, you've got still a very factional Conservative Party that's lost the ability to be disciplined and to, you know, suck up things they don't like. Yeah. Um, and this is... You know, this is just one more chipping away at that. We are in the correspondence unit reading your messages. Let's uh, go to this one next from Phil, who says, Hello, really enjoying the podcast. Easily the best new political podcast out there. Thank you, Phil. And just a note that compliments are a surefire way to get your email read out. So nicely done. Uh, Phil goes on to say some nice things about where he's from, uh, which is where my family is from. So thanks for that, Phil. It's always nice to get to know you. Uh, Kirsty and Oscar were talking in the last Stop and Roll episode about Rishi Sunak trying to give an impression that things are going to be okay. But he's certainly also been going for a boosterism-typed vibe with his social media. I'm keen to get your all of your thoughts on cringy videos that Rishi Sunak seems to be a fan of. And he, he highlights uh, this one as an example. Now at some pitches uh, that we have gone. Rishi Sunak's going to have his first full day as the British Prime Minister now. Developments this morning at 10 Downing Street in London. Asked Rishi Sunak to be the British Prime Minister. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your Prime Minister. And that work begins immediately. Get back, back to it. I will unite our country, not with words, but with action. I will work day in and day out to deliver for you. Hello, Joe Biden here. Mr. President, it's Rishi Sunak. How are you? Oh, Rishi, how are you? Congratulations, Mr. Prime Minister. He really had to enunciate his name there to make sure that Joe Biden actually said it correctly this time. Uh, so Phil's email goes on. Uh, keen to get your thoughts. Uh, basically, they seem to have put a background beat to his first speech as Prime Minister. There is a bit more to the video than we've just played. Uh, clearly trying to get feel-good vibes across to the public, but highly cringe, says Phil. Kirsty, is it highly cringe? <laughs> um... Well, I mean, look, it's horses for courses. One man's cringe is another man's dynamic <laughs> prime minister doing his doing his job and delivering for the British public. Look, videos have high attraction, do they not, on social media? It is a way of presenting an unvarnished image of yourself to the public that might not otherwise be interested in politics or get it through a veneer of of media that might have other agendas at play. So I kind of get it. Um, there are always potential slip-ups with this. I think if you um, if you do a lot of focus groups, I think one thing that most of the public think that they know about Rishi Sunak is that he turns up on building sites with really expensive shoes on and has Prada slipper slip-on slippers. Uh, maybe he's got Prada slippers <laughs> as well. Does, I don't know. To be fair, uh, sliders is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Sorry, I'm. Uh, I don't. I don't know what's happening. Your to footwear me fashion is off. Off radar. Uh, yeah. So Prada sliders. Um, so you know, you need to be careful with this kind of stuff because actually, when you're trying to present an image, you can actually stick something in the mind that's mm. unhelpful. Uh, look, I mean, I don't know. I quite liked it. Yeah. Fair. Interesting. A video. Uh, you're right about video communications. This is possibly where we can contrast with Matt Hancock, who, in order to sort of raise, uh, get views, basically, get clicks, 
he's off to like bury his face in bits of kangaroos, uh, whereas Rishi Sunak is quite happy to produce. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> maybe a bit crude. <laughs> of kangaroos that have been removed from the kangaroos yes, <laughs> cooked and put on a plate for yeah. the avoidance of any doubt that'll keep us out of court <laughs> thanks Kirsty. uh whereas rishi sunak is is making slick videos which is very on brand for him of course during the leadership campaign he was he was credited for you know being slick on instagram and, and so instagram and these sorts of communication methods are important in terms of getting messages across and maybe maybe oscar we should contrast a slick video with hancock going down under and I mean that in Australia, well, not quite, on a kangaroo. Yeah, I, just to clarify, <laughs> I feel quite strongly on this. I think that the social media use in politics from politicians is almost without exception done entirely wrong. <laughs> and I would include I would include Rishi's latest video. Really? In that, yeah. So... You know, Kirsty used a few words there that I think exactly lead me to that conclusion. So, you know, it's an opportunity, you know, for unvarnished. Um, <laughs> I think Kirsty's preoccupied with the idea of Matt Hancock in Australia. <clears throat> Sorry, that's really oh, this my is the fault. poor thing for Matt. He's now just a joke. I know. I know. And it, there is a serious point, as we've already discussed, but it is quite hilarious, the whole thing. Um... <laughs> Kirsty's right. It's an opportunity for unvarnished connection with the public, and he goes very, very highly varnished. The the reality is, though, he is still even even on his own in his own terms in terms of social media use amongst politicians. He's still one of the best. That is how drastically wrong they all get it. I think the best way to use social media as a politician to connect with people, and none of them seem particularly brave enough to do it is actually you go very raw with it. Mm. You use very raw footage. You don't, ed you don't edit your videos. You film real-time, real-life conversations with people. That's actually how you should do social media powerfully as a politician. If you've actually got the, if you've got the stones to do it. You know, and, and they, as soon as you see the editing process, and it's always the same, you know, mm. scripted, walking over here in a field, and then, you know, talking to... <laughs> It's 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 just I think it really turns people off. I think Rory Stewart, oddly enough, mm. is the one politician who used social media well. Where he used to, when he was running for mayor, he used to just literally on an iPhone, you know, he'd have an aide or whatever, and they would film him just talking to people, and it was unedited, and there were pauses, and there were, uh, uh, and people weren't always getting their sentences right, and. And it was like, I'm just watching a politician talk to, talk to uh, members of the public like a normal human being. That's how you do it. And they Didn't do, do his it mayoral campaign all that good, though, did it? No, true. <laughs> I think he had funding issues. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting, though, to consider. Uh, and speaking of social media, then, let's turn to the TikTok comments of the week. Uh, just finally, let's whiz through these. Uh, Miria says, uh, this is on your video, by the way, your clip, um, Oscar, is saying that Suella Braverman speaks for the electorate, and that's something to consider when discussing the Home Secretary, her policies, her language, etc. Uh, Miria says, it's only the Ramoners and London-based media that want Suella gone. Uh, Robs says, I don't genuinely believe anyone cares about immigration like Suella Braverman, which I suppose could be interpreted two ways, but anyway, that's what Rob says. Uh, Grove says, you've hit the spot correctly. Normal people I associate with, not extremists in any way, support her plans. 
although Grove does go on to say, fed up with money being spent on illegals, which is a slightly problematic way of describing people. So I just wanted <laughs> just, to, but I wanted just, to read just, that comment in full. Go on. Just, just to come in on that. So here's the thing, okay? I mean, my background wasn't, but I live a entirely Southwest London middle-class lifestyle. So from my personal perspective, we could have an open border policy and I wouldn't care. Mm. It wouldn't affect my life. It just wouldn't. And I, and I have to be kind of open and understanding of that. So I don't care about immigration. I, gen, I do, do not care about it, one iota, because it doesn't affect my life. However, there has to be an understanding that there are people, there are communities in the UK where the idea of uh, the numbers that we do see crossing over the channel at the moment makes them feel anxious and understandably so because it potentially has that does have a direct impact on their life and I think if the media and I think if politicians fail to acknowledge that then the Tory party who obviously in government now will be punished at the next general election and that's why I think going back to what we talked about with Rishi and Suella and Suella and Rishi he understands that and I think that's why he was willing to expend a bit of political capital on her. Which is exactly why, <clears throat> to your point, Oscar, which is exactly why Brexit happened. And it's exactly, exactly why 2019 happened, because, you know, the voters got fed up with a Labour Party telling them what they should and shouldn't think. Uh, exactly. And, you know, brushing some of their views under the carpet because they didn't appeal with their quinoa munching, you know, uh, sensibilities, right? So, you know, but having said all that, beware of easy slogans and cakeism as ever in, you know, mm. in Brexit as everything else, you know, we were, Brexit was about taking back control of our money, our laws and our borders. Well, this shows, you know, uh, uh, we've, we've debated today about our money, mm. uh, you know, uh, we've we've taken it back. What little we have left, we've taken back of it. Our laws, well, we are still in a situation where our ability to um, uh, push through certain policies on migration might go all the way to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Um, and we have completely lost control of our borders. So, you know, people should always be aware of mm. political promises that, that seem to you know to be too good to be true because everything in life is incredibly complex this most of all is one of those areas where the ability to move the ability to impact and make real change is fraught with difficulties with legal challenges with the inability yeah. to to do what this government wants to do its preferred option which is to act as a massive deterrent by taking people putting them on planes and sending them four thousand miles away it won't be able to do that because the courts won't let them just on that, because obviously I was at number 10 when the Rwanda policy was was all happening. Just politically here, and again, listeners might go, oh, God, just stop talking about the politics, talk about actual solutions and real-world stuff. But purely politically, the Rwanda policy was exactly the argument that we wanted to have. It was exactly where we wanted to be. because, And it was really fascinating when the policy was announced watching Labour's reaction to it because and this is when you know as the Conservative Party you've got Labour completely backs to the wall cornered on a contentious issue like immigration because the counter argument was never this is inhumane um, you know we we should have 
uh, you know, immigration should be welcomed. Um, Labour didn't really know where to go with it because they know a lot of the people that they need to win back at the next election probably quite like a policy like Rwanda. So what they were going on, their, their counter-arguments were always on exactly to Kirsty's point, um, kind of the practicalities of it or the cost of it. And so when you see Suella talking the way she's talking, you have to remember that this is an argument that the Conservative Party want. And the reason they want this argument is because Labour don't really know where to go with it. They can't really call it out. And again, that causes tensions within the Labour Party because the left of the Labour Party you know, are completely up in arms about Keir Starmer's lack of willingness to say, hang on a minute, immigration is a brilliant thing, it's inhumane uh, to, to, to speak about them, how we speak. You know, it, it puts Labour in a really tight position, this. Really, really fascinating. Thank you for your thought-provoking comments and messages this week. If you would like to have your message read out in the correspondence unit on our next episode, then just email hello at whitehallsources.com if you've got questions that you want to put to Oscar and Kirsty and um, challenge them on something, get them thinking, then feel free. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address. Or you can find us on social media. Search for Whitehall Sources on Twitter, on Instagram and TikTok. You'll get clips. You can leave your comments there. There's all sorts of updates. And so all that remains to be done for this week is, of course, to close the door of the correspondence unit. Oh. Here, here it is. There we go. Brilliant. That's the door closed. We oiled it between opening it and closing it. Nice. Good. Uh, right, that's us. <laughs> uh, gosh. Thank you, Kirsty. Thank you, Oscar. It's been lovely to be with you for this episode of Whitehall Sources. Thanks for your messages. Keep those coming as well. Thanks to James Medway also for joining us for Checkers and Balances. He's a former advisor to John McDonnell when he was the Shadow Chancellor. Uh, you can find more of his thoughts online, of course. Make sure you follow the podcast, subscribe to it. We will be doing weekly podcasts from here on out. Look at us getting into a routine. That's very fun, isn't it? Uh, make sure you leave a little review for us as well. We love when you do that. We love having you there. There are many, many thousands of you, as it turns out, which we are so grateful for. Thank you for being part of Whitehall Sources, and we will speak to you next week. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.